Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are my friends David and Kathleen Cook, who are calling in from New York. Where do you live? I didn't even ask that before we started. Well, we live in Menden, New York, which is a suburb of Rochester. It's about halfway between Palmyra and Rochester. And, of course, New York, as we all know, was the Lord's first choice. (laughs) I like that. Um, My wife and I took our family there. We love that part of New York. And just by way of background, um, we're going to talk about service missions. Um, Brother and Sister Cook have responsibility for this program. It's a new program for all of their area, which is multiple states. And by background on their church experience, um, Brother and Sister Cook presided over the the Chile-Santiago South Mission from 2013 to 2016. Brother Cook has served as an area authority 70, a stake president and a bishop, and um, both of um, Kathleen and David Cook have spent just really decades helping um, to bring people to Christ through our restored church. Brother Cook is a lawyer um, and is currently practicing. They are the parents of four children and um, six grandchildren, And um, by coincidence, um, Brother Cook's trainer on his mission in the New York City Spanish-speaking mission a while ago was somebody that I looked up to tremendously growing up in my home ward in Salt Lake City, Gordon Jensen, who has since passed away. And we just reminisced about Gordon Jensen. So if any of our listeners know Gordon Jensen from Highland High School, roughly the class of 77, um, Brother Cook um, had the pleasure of being trained and loves Gordon and um, maybe we'll mention about a little bit about Gordon, but um, anything from a bio standpoint, I've misspoke. No, that's cool. No, I think you got it. So tell us about your new assignment. Well, we were, uh, this, this new assignment was created about a year ago. Um, we are called um, Service Mission Leaders, and we are assigned geographically. Typically, they're assigned to coordinating councils, which uh, coordinate or correspond to the, the boundaries of, of a mission. So we have the what is now called the Syracuse Coordinating Council. Um, within that area, there are five stakes from the Massachusetts-New York border to the, um, the Pennsylvania border on one side. And uh, there's one district within that, so it's a fairly large area. Um, both some urban centers in the major cities like Buffalo and Rochester, Albany, Syracuse, and, and a lot of rural and upstate beautiful mountains in the northern part of New York that most people in the West don't think we have. But it's a really a phenomenal area to live and to serve and to play. And, um, yeah, I mean, I want to talk about New York because my wife and I have loved our experience there at times and where you've raised your family and serving. And um, it is a beautiful area. We're recording this in January, so I wish, you know, I don't know the winter there as well as the spring and summer, but it's a beautiful part of the world. David and Kathleen, are you from New York or where did you two grow up? No, we actually both grew up in Utah. I um, grew up in the Huntsville Valley, um, in a suburb of Huntsville called Liberty. Yes. And Dave grew up in Ogden. And Ogden High, class of 76, and Weber High, class of 79. And then 77. 
excuse me, 77. And then we, uh, we met at Weber State. And what took you to, to New York? Job. We uh, got a job offer here, and uh, it was never even on the radar. <laughs> and uh, it was really a kind of an odd, fluky experience. And uh, we've been here since 1987. So that's 20-plus years, if I'm doing my math right. That's 30-plus years. 33. Did you think when you went to New York that you'd just live there for a few years and come back to northern Utah? Or did you, did you, as you got married, kind of want to live outside of Utah? I think we did kind of want to raise our family outside of Utah, although I did make Dave promise, as the plane was descending into New York, I made him promise me that if we didn't like it here, we could go home. And 32 years later, we're still here. It's been a wonderful place for us to raise our family. We, you know, we really actually wanted to live someplace where there were more than just white Mormons. <laughs> so good. We, you know, it just sort of happened, and uh, it's just been a phenomenal place to be. Did Al Caraway join the church in your area? I just know she's somewhere in New York. Yes, she was baptized in the Rochester stake. We're in the Palmyra stake. Um, so actually the ward she was baptized in is the ward that that borders on our ward. Wow. That's we have family in our ward. How many homes have you lived in since you've been there 30 plus years? Well, we, we had two homes before we left on our mission to Santiago. And we sold our, our home when we left in our cars. Wow. And um, so we're in a new home now that we've been home. We bought a house sight unseen while we were still in Chile. Wow. And uh, came came home to really not not uh, to acquiring things again, I guess. You know, we, we actually both have our early church history roots come through New York, and mine in particular in Menden. So my third great-grandfather... Uh, was baptized about four miles from where we live now, two miles actually. Really? And, you... uh, yeah. So it, it's kind of there's a little group of saints out here in Menden now that we we kind of joke about reforming the old Menden branch where Brigham <laughs> and Heber attended. Did you know that history before you moved back to New York? You know, I sort of vaguely knew something, but not much. And it wasn't until we were here, and I was reading the biography of. Um, of Heber C. Kimball by his grandson, Orsnep Whitney, that I became aware of it. And then there was a local historian who had been, was the expert um, on, at that point, on the church in New York. He wasn't a member of the church. And our ward had a little um, a tour that he gave one day, and we met him, and we became very good friends with him. And Ultimately, we ended up buying the property where my third great-grandfather had his home at the time he was baptized. No way. That is really cool. Did you name any kids after him? Well, we did, actually. Our our first son, his middle name is Kimball. After that relative. That's cool. Um, Let's talk about, I mean, my experience... Um, I've been a YSA bishop, and we had a few missionaries on service missions. In fact, one I recognized in the artwork, um, Elder Partridge, that um, came across that you emailed me, just some of the artwork. He's actually in one of the photos. I thought, I know that guy. 
So I had some experience with service missions, but it was a big kind of gray fog for me why sending someone on a full-time mission was there wasn't much fog there was a well-outlined process and and so this other world I'd never really got my arms around and I've been released for a couple years and I know significant change has occurred with this whole program so maybe just talk to or just introduce the new service missionary program to our listeners um the new service missionary program is different in that these missionaries live at home. They, it really becomes a, a different experience for the whole family as they try to create uh, an environment that would be conducive to a missionary. And they do not have a companion, which can be hard. Um, so they motivate themselves. And it's it's really kind of a home-centered, church-supported mission. Um, and extremely customizable. So um, the, 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 the service opportunities are designed by and with the missionary. Um, our missionary that we have right now works in a animal shelter, a refugee resettlement, uh, in the mission office. Uh, she also works at the temple. So it's really very, very flexible. And that, that customization is the reason for the um, high success rate of a service mission. Because with a teaching mission, sometimes it's difficult for a missionary to be able to um, fit themselves into the parameters, which are sort of pretty specific for a teaching mission, but with the customization available for a service mission, there's a very high rate of success. I like the flex. It sounds like this missionary that you have um, has a lot of different responsibilities. I think you mentioned that she's a sister missionary, but I wasn't positive. And does that sister missionary, who is her mission president? She does not have a mission president, but the person directly responsible for her is her state president. So this state, this is a, an additional assignment and responsibility that state presidents now um, incur when they have a, a missionary, a service missionary, living within their state boundaries. Because normally a, a state president, and Dave can speak to this, is thrilled when a teaching missionary receives their call. They wave to him and say, we'll see you in a few years. And and um, and hopefully don't hear uh, too much unless there's a problem um, while they're on their mission. But with a service missionary, the state president is very involved. It adds an additional responsibility to the to the state president. We ask the state presidents to have a have some regular contact with an interview with them. Um, that tends to be maybe monthly or even quarterly. Um, so we fill in the gaps. We have a we have weekly contact. Weekly them, contact. Um, yeah, either by a phone call or an email. And then we uh, we do a little message kind of like we used to do with our missionaries in the field, and a weekly message to them, kind of in, inspire them to flatten the challenges that they're facing. And um, so, yeah. So if I were a service missionary, my stake presence, you know, my priesthood leader, he sets me apart. But I have, um, I don't know what the right title is, church service missionary leaders. 
like you two that are kind of my day to day or or week to week um, that oversee maybe more of the details of my assignment, maybe get more involved in the questions and answers and helping to guide the assignment. Is that fair or help us understand that better? That's just right. That's exactly right. So in the customization of the program, part of that is identifying organizations for them to serve. Um, and in a place like Utah, where there's large um, opportunities, significant opportunities in church operations like the storehouse or any of those kinds of things, um, it's, it's a little bit different. Whereas here, where we don't have those. We'll, we will work in vetting organizations that would be um, can, organizations where they could serve Habitat for Humanity or Refugee Resettlement or any, and Catholic Family Services, any variety of organizations. And there's a simple vetting process that we go through um, and, and get a sign off from church headquarters and missionary department on, on those and um, kind of develop, develop that network of service organizations for them to serve with. And is that, if I'm a service missionary thinking about it, is that kind of, is that all figured out before I serve or is it, or do I serve and I kind of work with a couple like you at times to adjust my assignment as I'm getting my feet kind of on my, what is that term? My feet, my feet underneath me and kind of getting my voice and maybe realizing some things are better than others. Well, Certainly, we want to have input from the missionary, um, although, in the, and this is similar to a teaching missionary, they don't choose their own assignment the same way as a teaching missionary does not choose the area where they will serve. Um, so we try to, to get their input and make sure it's a good fit for them, but they don't uh, necessarily pick their own assignments. So it sounds like you counsel together and there's input. And then at the end of the day, priesthood leaders are responsible for kind of dis, dis, defining the mission, just like you did in Chile, the areas you served and the companions you yeah. served with. For example, with the, the sister that we have right now, she received a mission call while she was a student at BYU. And then she was in a car accident and severely injured her back, which, which prevented her from, um, from going forward with her her teaching mission. And after a significant period of recovery, uh, she was able to go back to school and graduate. But due to continued back pain, it was still a, a teaching mission still wasn't a possibility for her. She graduated with a degree in wildlife, biology or management. And so because of that interest, part of her customization of her plan has her working in animal service organizations, which she loves to do. And does, has she been set apart? Um, does she wear a badge? Just talk about a little bit about that for our listeners. Yes, um, it's very similar. There's a service mission handbook, similar to the um, white mission handbook that the teaching missionaries carry. She is set apart, and she lives a, a fairly similar lifestyle to um, a teaching missionary. Although service missionaries can work part-time, they can go to school. Um, as long as those kinds of activities take a back seat to the mission, as long as the mission is preeminent in their time, um, 
also they do not need to be endowed um, and for elders do not need to hold the Melchizedek priesthood. That's helpful to know that. What about rules? Um, Are the rules the same? Go to bed, get up, no dating, no electronics. I mean, the kind of the white handbook rules of a proselyting mission, or are they different? They're similar in some areas, different in others. And, uh, you know, the, the the handbook is available online on the church website. If anybody's interested in looking at those differences, um, their schedule is customized to their individual circumstances. So they may not rise and go to bed at the same hours that a teaching missionary would, but they also um, do, do not date. Um, and don't pursue interest in in dating while they're missionaries, but they are allowed to use electronics. So they can also take break and go on vacation with their family um, for a short period of time. Our um, sister missionary that's serving here in Syracuse applied to and was accepted to be in the Hilcomora pageant this summer, and so she will set aside her duties temporarily at the organizations that she serves in to to participate in the Hilcomora pageant. That's cool. Anything to add, David, to just that question? Um, yeah, but as Kathleen said, it's extremely flexible. Um, the there's a, we we're aware of one situation to give you the broad range. Uh, there's a young man not in our area, but it's a young man who was a, a quadriplegic. And the only thing that he, body movement that he has is that he can move his eyes and blink. And he applied for a service mission and was called, and he served as a greeter in the temple. Wow. And he, he, would, he would sit in, in the um, entry of the temple and just blink his eyes as patrons would come in and that was his service and it was meaningful to him and touching to the patrons as you come in and you're greeted by this humble young man and really um, very touching to kind of a good way to begin your temple session but you know that Mm -hmm. just shows you the broad range of customization that can be available Talk about our culture um, that sometimes values proselyting missions over service missions. Um, And I would assume our senior leaders want to change that so there's not that perception. And this is part of what's happening now in our church. Do either of you want to speak to that? Yes. um, When we were serving in in Chile, I talked frequently to the missionaries about the fact that when the Savior was on the earth, um, he did just two things for the entire time that he fulfilled his mission. And that was he taught and he served. And one of the things that we saw in Chile, you know, kind of going to this culture issue, we had kind of a unique experience. We we were there when the wave hit, so we went from wow, <laughs> that's we a whole new podcast. <laughs> we went from we went from 120 missionaries when we got there, and it was a new mission, that just created, 
um, we went from 120 to 280 missionaries. And on top of that, our mission was probably the smallest mission in the church geographically or close to it. It was well, outside of Temple Square. Yeah, maybe. it was um, 16 miles long by 11 miles wide, which is about the size of our ward here in New York. Wow. And within that area, there were eight stakes and um, about two million people. Wow. And so we had wards that were geographically extraordinarily small. And with that wave, we had a minimum of four missionaries in every ward and in a couple of cases, six or even eight. And so if we sent missionaries out, the traditional forms of proselyting, of street contacting and knocking on doors, um, they would track out a ward in a matter of a couple of weeks. And, you know, any missionary knows how hard it is just emotionally to go back and start retracting an area you've already tracked it. <laughs> you know, you kind of know what, what's facing you behind the door. Um, and so we, we asked our missionaries, we, we called two assistants that were called, what was in English? It was um, APAPS in Spanish. Um, public Affairs. Yeah, Assistance for Public Affairs. And their job, part of their time, was to go around to the municipalities and the churches and the service organizations and to organize service opportunities for our missionaries. And they built churches and they cleaned homes and they landscaped parks and they just did all kinds of stuff. And it did two things. It was really interesting because I tracked it. In every case where, where, where they did that, we saw an increase in teaching increases in, in discussions. And it was almost like a relief for the missionaries. There, it, it, it was a release for them. And so it was really tremendous to see how that service component, it enhanced missionary service. It created greater teaching opportunities. Missionaries would say, you know, we, we were in this project doing this job, and, and then we were tracking a day or two later, and people said to us, you know, yeah, you were the guys over there doing that project, you know, and, and it opened opportunities for them. So the, the, the point is that the, the, the traditional mission of street contacting and, and knocking on doors is, is that's what I did. And I loved it. And it was a wonderful experience, but the world's changed a lot. And we had a hard time in many cases missionaries to finding people to teach other than on the streets because it was hard to get through security gates or otherwise to, to talk to people. And service opened doors for teaching that they otherwise would not have had. And so this kind of takes it to another level. It gives these missionaries who can't, for a variety of reasons, do a, a teaching mission, but to feel like they're meaningfully contributing to the building of the kingdom. And doing it in the same way that the Savior did, and that there are disciples in the same way that the teaching missionaries are, doing the same thing that he did. And those two words you said, Kathleen, were taught and served, if I heard correctly? That's correct. He taught I, the gospel, and he served others. I love, I love everything you both just said. I love the simplicity, Kathleen, of the Savior's message, and how that's so doable. When you just simplified mm -hmm. it to taught and served. 
I can kind of get my arms around it and feel like I can do that. Um, talk about the process. If I'm a parent or a person considering a mission, I don't quite know if I'm going to be a, uh, I can't, I'm not even sure I'm using the right vocabulary, a proselyting mission, missionary versus a service missionary. Talk us through the process of just knowing how to navigate those two options. Um, the, the proper vocabulary now is teaching mission and, and uh, service mission. All right. I'm going to write and, that down know, on my little paper. <laughs> one, of the, yeah, one of the things that we're trying to do in our training is one of the most effective trainings we've done is with the auxiliary leaders because we think it's the women of the church, the mothers, uh, the sisters serving in primary, they're going to see early on those kids that might either be self-selecting out of a mission or that might be good candidates down the road. And so we're hoping that in time, we can see a significant expansion of kids that might have otherwise chose not to serve because they didn't think they could fill the rigorous nature of a, of a teaching mission um, and just getting that word out. But if a parent now, someone listening to this that has a child in this circumstance, um, they can go online on the service mission uh, on the church website and they, there's all kinds of materials that will orient them on the, on the process and what it involves and start to talk about it with their children and hopefully give them the feeling that this is a real meaningful opportunity. There's some tremendously um, inspirational videos and stories. And statistically, interestingly, the return rate, if you will, for service missionaries is substantially, substantially lower than what the turn rate is for teaching missionaries. The early return rate, I should That's say. interesting. You said a couple of things I want to follow up on. Tell our listeners where the website is um, to find more about service missions. I don't have the address handy, but if you just go to the, the regular LDS.org. And, oh, uh, excuse me, that. excuse me. Craig, <laughs> the Church, Church of Jesus Christ. Christ.org. Um, and if you, you can go in there, if you just search service mission, it'll pop right up. Yeah, so that's easy for our listeners to just go to the church's main website and search service yeah. missions. I love your point about mothers because um, that would certainly ring true in my experience in our own home and the homes I've been involved with as a priesthood leader, that moms often have this on their radar map for their sons or daughters. And so a parent getting educated um, about a service mission and you're right, That I kind of first thought that would happen right at missionary age, but you put the thought in my mind that that could happen much earlier. And especially if a parent recognizes there may be both options available to a child and to start to educate themselves and that child and manage expectations. And I like the term you're using of self-select out. And the way I'm interpreting that term is a fair group of, of Latter-day Saint young people recognize the um, a teaching mission isn't going to be their path and then sort of select self-select out of any mission and may even step away from the church as sometimes there's a fork in the road between either staying active in the church or serving a teaching mission. Um, cause right. culturally it becomes hard sometimes to stay active if you 
are not serving a teaching mission. So um, any more follow-up on that? That's just a couple of things that you shared that popped into my mind. I think it's also important to point out that, um, so the process is is very similar. They go through the interview process, they submit the, the same application, they receive a call from the 12, they have a farewell, they have a homecoming report. It, it, it's all the same in terms of the process. It's just how it's, de- it's, it's designed with the flexibility to meet the needs of the, of the service mission. That's helpful. So if I'm a, a young person starting my mission papers, I would use mission papers to reflect both roads. And I would go to the same website and start opening my mission papers. Correct me if I misspeak and start to fill in that basic information that would be all the same. And then eventually my bishop and stake president are going to get involved. And through their counsel and and my input, I assume that a decision's made at the local level of which makes sense, a teaching mission or a service mission, but maybe not. Maybe both options are then sent to the missionary department and a call is issued to help us understand just where kind of the fork in the road clearly happens. Well, the applicant themselves can express uh, their feelings about the type of uh, mission missionary that they would like to be. They cannot request to specifically serve a service mission, and they cannot specifically request a teaching mission either. So they will just give good information, and the bishop and the stake president will do the same. Um, If there is some question about the applicant's ability to serve a full-time teaching uh, mission, and they indicate that on the application, it will open a new page in the application with six additional questions, which will help the bishop or the state president to be able to um, give the best information that they can so that the call will be under inspiration. Does the call come from the missionary department? So a state president will give a recommendation, then does the call come from the missionary department? And is that the first time a, re- um, a candidate will know if it's a service mission or a full-time mission or is it usually kind of decided um, at the stake level so the candidate has a pretty good idea? And maybe it's different. It is not de- and maybe it's different yeah, in every area. It's not decided on a stake level, but if a missionary is going to be called as a service missionary, the stake president of that missionary will receive that information ahead of time. They will know that that call will be coming to serve a service mission. And then the applicant will receive the, um, the call just as a teaching missionary receives their call from the first presidency. And um, I would think a service missionary should have uh, the same sort of event that goes on their family with a teaching mission. As far as opening that call, it sounds like there's a farewell, there's a setting apart. And so whatever the family kind of how they handle those calls, I would assume that you would want that family to treat both calls just the same. Oh, absolutely. And and the call letter that comes, if I can just read a portion of this letter, um, it reads very similar 
to a teaching missionary um, call letter, and this is just uh, a paragraph. Your purpose will be to help others come unto Christ by serving them as the Savior would. You will minister in his name to the one. As he did. Representing. Expressing his loving kindness. As you serve with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, you will feel the joy that comes from giving of yourself to lift others. Well, now you brought some tears to my eyes. And I look at the state we've... Sorry about that. It's, <laughs> it's very touching um, to realize that there are um, children and youth within the church to, you know, grow up singing in primary. I hope they call me on a mission. Or youth that receive patriarchal blessings that tell them they will serve, but then they've um, been unable to for whatever reason. And so this program really makes Doctrine and Covenants Section 4, Verse 3 effectual for all young men and young women in the church. If ye have desires to serve God, ye are called to the work. That's really powerful. Yeah. I see how wonderful it was to serve with you. <laughs> I love the way your interaction, I'm not obviously over the phone, but I love the way you both are speaking and um, equally sharing thoughts and insights. It's a beautiful example of how we serve together as husband and wife when we have callings together. And maybe even when we don't have callings together, we work together. Uh, I'm struck with the spirit of what you just shared, Kathleen, and um, I'm struck with the thought that, you know, the rescue is one by one. And I would think that service missionaries that have served in the church and are serving and that will serve will rescue people that a teaching missionary can't and won't. And and it's all about the rescue and it's all about the one. And everybody has unique gifts and skills and attributes to lift and reach the one. And I, I would assume there's thousands of stories of service missionaries reaching somebody that only they could reach with their unique gifts and abilities. And, and that's just part of the plan and, and how that makes our savior so happy. And I kind of come back to this cultural thing. I'm trying to, to, you know, we've got all these cultural things that kind of crop up and culturally uh, teaching mission seems to be ranked above a service mission. And I don't think that's how you feel and our leaders feel and the saviors feel, but culturally that's sort of happened. And so there's a bit of shame and embarrassment potentially when someone says they're going on a service mission. Um, and there's not sort of that same sort of feeling any just thoughts about how we change that <laughs> doctrinal answers or yeah. just, just thoughts about um, how we re make that go away just maybe a little story that i could share that was that was shared with us um one of the members of the, of the 70 um was at a state conference within the last year or so and as is not uncommon for a state president in a session of state conference to ask the uh the missionaries that are serving 
or maybe in some cases, maybe the parents of the missionaries are serving to stand up in one of the sessions and be recognized. And the state president did that. And a number of people stood up. And and then the 70, the presiding 70 stood up and he, he, he again said, I would also like all of the service missionaries to stand and to be recognized. And it was just a, such a little cultural tweak, you know, and I'm sure that mission president was, or the, the state president rather was feeling, you know, maybe a little self-conscious that he had not thought of that, but it is, it's a cultural thing that it, it you know, Elder Nelson came to Chile when we were there and, and he said, you know, the church is like a big battleship. It takes a long time, long time to turn. And it is, I mean, the brethren, Oftentimes, in my experience, they're ready to go quicker than we are. And but the culture of the church is sometimes just slow, slow to move, and we've got to move it here. And I think the the the, the churches, the things that we're seeing coming down with church service missions, and the opportunities, we think that that culture will change. Well, and there are things that we can do. We can make sure. For example, in a state conference program where they list all of the missionaries serving, make sure that the service missionaries' names are there as well. Um, in wards that put a, a plaque up for a missionary that says where they're serving and um, you know their favorite scripture and those kinds of things, that we remember to do the same for a service missionary. Even though a service missionary isn't going to leave home per se, they will be living in their own home they should still give um, the equivalent of a farewell at the beginning of their mission. And at the conclusion of their mission, they will also report on their growth and experiences from their mission. And, and you know, just little things like making sure we refer to them um, when they're serving within our ward, not by their first name as we've known them all the while they were grown, growing up, but as elder and or sister. Um, I think those little kinds of things will help to elevate the idea of a service missionary in the eyes of the members. You know, another um, thought that I, I had is, I'm going to forget it now. <laughs> oh, um, the other that we really haven't talked about much is the early return missionaries that transition into a service mission. And um, as a mission president, when a missionary needs to go home for um, a health reason, it, it's it's scary because some of them you with every one of them you talk to them say you want them back you know maybe it's a broken leg and it's just some time to heal or and those are a little bit more easier to to deal with but a missionary that's going home for anxiety issues or depression um, those are scary because you you really really worry how um, they'll be in terms of the healing and being able to get back. And this kind of an opportunity for a a mission president, a full-time mission president to, to have a program beginning to be developed. So that missionary returns home, he meets with his, with his state president and it's not a return, it's a transfer into another phase of their mission and we'll have a much greater retention than of missionaries that come home early and don't have that opportunity 
and those missionaries that return early that transition into a service mission are not released. They come home and they continue to serve whatever length of time they desire, whether that is completing their mission, that they began as a teaching missionary, whether that's two weeks left, two months left, or, you know, 23 months left, they will um, choose to serve for whatever length of time they determine would be best for their circumstances. I love um, that option that I didn't know was available for an early release missionary to transfer into a service mission. And then it's, I don't even want to call them early release missionaries. I like the word transfer you both shared. We just transfer into this other mission and it's kind of a continuum. What if a missionary comes home, I'm going to use early release again, um, early um, and needs sort of a period of time to emotionally kind of get back to healthy so that they can serve a service mission. Is, is that possible? And is there, I, I don't know what the right vocabulary is, a, a time between missions that would be appropriate? That's absolutely um, a possibility. And in fact, encouraged in many situations because it is very difficult when your teaching mission comes to an end earlier than you thought that it would, it's very hard to come home. And so, um, yes, there's a period where maybe they just need to sleep. Um, maybe they just need to, to uh, have a, a week or two weeks or depending on whatever condition has necessitated their return. Maybe they need some physical therapy for an injury, whatever that is. Again, that's the flexibility and the customization available with the service mission that they can take the time they need. Can you talk to early release missionaries? You've dealt with a lot, I'm sure, as, as some left your mission. You stayed in contact and you wanted to give them hope. And, you know, this is a bit of a tangent, but just give Talk to early release missionaries that are listening. And t if they were your missionaries sure. or if they came home to your stake and you were their stake president or their, you know, sisters that or brothers that you're both close to, what would you say to help them just have hope and move forward? Um, the first thing is just that we love them. And I think one of the things that we can do as a church, um, when a missionary returns home, we tried to call the bishop and the state president and give them a heads up. And I asked them, I said, ask them to please send the word out to the ward that this missionary was returning home so that you know, people don't go to church the next Sunday and they're shocked and, you know, everybody wants to come up and say, how you doing? Why are you home? You know, it just becomes so hard for them. And I, I would tell our missionaries that we're returning home early, your hardest Sunday in your life is going to be next Sunday and be there and it'll get better because you're loved no less than you were if you were if you were staying here for the full amount of your service, and you know it was so hard sending them home early, knowing that it was it was going to be tough. And I this this is perfectly tailored for a mission president to immediately be in touch with the with the state president. The president begins to be in touch with the family. They start they start developing 
a program that they can start talking about with that missionary so that when the time's right, or there's a physical recovery they need to go through. But even then, if they've got a broken leg and they're sitting around, there's still things that they can do as a service missionary you know, on the phone and you know, variety of things. And um, it just gives them that sense of purpose that the Lord still wants them. And as Kathleen said, and the, the, the cultural shift we need to remember is, you know, Christ taught and served. And we've often thought and focused more on the teaching part than the service part. And that's clear. Love one another. That was his mission, was service and love. And um, culturally, we can do a better job of teaching that, expressing it, living it, and um, uh, allowing our missionaries to, to fill needed in that process. And I would say, um, speaking directly to um, missionaries that have to return home early, whether they transition into a service mission or not, a, a mission may not be for you, but the church is for you. That's cool, Kathleen. You have some every every <laughs> every early return missionary that we took took to the airport. I remember her oftentimes taking them by the cheeks and with tears in her eyes saying that to them. And uh, some that went home under some really trying circumstances, and others we thought we'd probably see again. But um, you know, and we've stayed in touch with a lot of them and most of them, and uh, they've done okay. The majority. Well, that kind of brought tears to my eyes again. <laughs> Talk about um, thoughts are just coming in my mind. I'm I don't know church statistics, but my personal observation is there's a an increase in early release missionaries as a percent that are serving. Um, we've seen that I think in my experience in our area. I don't know if that's true, and it, whether it's true or not. What are your thoughts just to help parents or young people? Um, and I realize that's just going to happen in some situations, but to maybe decrease the amount of times it happens if, or just any thoughts on, no one wants to have an early release missionary, the family, the local leaders, the missionary, it's a really hard road as we all know. Mm -hmm. And so we'd love to not have this happen. Just thoughts on prevention or preparedness or whatever. And I realize in some situations, it's it's it, we would never know it's going to happen until a missionary's in that environment, and some things happen with their emotional health or a, a physical injury that are just you can't prepare for that, you can't know that, so it just happens at times. You know, um, I've heard people say that there is a you know a soft generation that are not as prepared, or, and I think that's. Nonsense. <laughs> I, I agree. Was not our... it, was, it was not our experience. And I think the missionaries that we served with were way better than my generation in so many ways. Um, and I, I think that we, uh, we don't give them the credit that I, I think that they deserve at times. Um, I thought, in general, I found them way more prepared than I was. Um, and willing, and worthy, um, obedient, teachable, 
And I've often, Kathleen and I have often speculated and wondered about this, and maybe it was because we were a new mission and, you know, there was so much going on and it, it was just, you know, it, it was a, it was a regular 80 to 90 hour work week for us. <laughs> and we, we never, you know, my, my lawyer friends, when I got back would say, so what was it like? And I said, it was like being on trial for three years. And, you know, they all know what that's like. Um, and, and yet we found, we were so inspired by these young people and, um, I can't say enough good about it. And we ha- we actually had a fairly low return rate in our mission, lower than, than is the kind of the average across the church. And I don't know why that is necessarily. Um, and we had a really low level of obedience issues. I mean, it was remarkable. I, I didn't have, you know, I'd heard mission presidents talk about the calls in the middle of the night. Yeah, I had a few of them, but not very many. And, uh, you know, one time we got this call uh, on a P day, we're on our way back from a drive up in the Andes. And we get a call from the mission department. They said, you know, we're removing the missionaries from Venezuela. And we were sending them, dispersing them across Latin America. And we'd like you to know if you could take some. And we said, sure, we'd be happy to. And, and they said, well, how many? And we said, how many? And they said, eight. And I said, when? And they said, day after tomorrow. Wow. And so we called our mission staff. They came up to the mission home that night. And we stayed up till probably 2 o'clock in the morning with the assistants and the, and the office staff figuring out where to put them, how to accommodate them, and all that stuff that we did. And they all spent on the mission on that night. And then these eight missionaries, all Bolivians, who were serving in, in um, Venezuela come in, and they were welcomed by our missionaries and just hit the ground running. Wow. And, and these, these poor missionaries had been in three different missions um, because of the chaos that had been going on. And... Um, and I, I look at that group of office missionaries and assistants, and they were remarkable. I mean, just I, I, I would I'd go into business with it, with any of them. <laughs> That's cool. They were just so good. And, but you know, to to answer your question, um, yes, there are more missionaries coming home early than we have seen in previous generations, and. Um, and I think maybe we we need to start focusing on um, mission preparation in a different way. Um, I wasn't so concerned about a missionary who couldn't iron his own shirt as I was about a missionary who didn't have the tools to manage stress, um, who, who wasn't able to self-assess their own uh, emotional state and didn't have the tools to kind of help them get through the day. So um, I think certain aspects of missionary prep um, need to be more highlighted. Um, I think the church has a great booklet called Adjusting to Missionary Life that talks about that. Um, to be able to, to self-care and to eat well and to get enough sleep and to do the things that we know will help us to be strong emotionally and mentally as well as physically. But we didn't find 
um, a big difference in um, a very recent convert missionary who maybe didn't grow up with primary and youth programs and seminary who didn't know the scriptures um, as well. We didn't find any difference in their ability to be an excellent missionary and disciple um, compared to somebody who had all those privileges. So I think really, rather than memorizing scriptures or, like I said, ironing a shirt, we focus on the things that really um, make a difference in being a disciple of Christ. Yeah. The other thing I, I would just mention, you know, we were serving when the gospel topic essays were released. And um, some of those would get, were picked up by the Chilean press, kind of the international press. And I remember one set of interviews we're doing. It was right after one of the essays on Joseph Smith and polygamy was released. And I remember two missionaries in particular, one Latin and one North American. One spoke to me and one to Kathleen. And um, this Latin kid said, Sister Cook, a man came up to me on the street the other day and said, Joseph Smith had more than one wife. More than one wife. And he very proudly said to Kathleen, Sister Cook, I told him he was a liar. <laughs> and she said, she said to him, no, he wasn't. And he was just blown away. And this is a kid that was, you know, born, born and raised in, in the covenant, you know, from pioneer stock in his country of Columbia, you know, the first members for a couple of generations in his family. And so we, the next zone conference we had, the topic was was handling the hard questions. And, we, and, and I think there's a level of kind of inoculation. Yeah, I love that. that. I think we need to give our young people, you know, the, the brother and elder Ballard has said the day of easy answers are over and every teacher needs to know the gospel topic essays. And uh, we encouraged our missionaries to read them as they came out and had great discussions with them about them. And, you know, that's it's an area that's kind of new that we need to be, I think, cognizant of in preparing our young people, not only for discipleship, but for teaching the gospel. I love the, that. the other area, go ahead. The other area, and I think this might be more sort of a intermountain issue where kids grow up in a very dominant religious atmosphere. Um, the a lot of a lot of young people have never had exposure to other churches, um, other than those that you know. I think maybe like, I don't know the number of our missionaries that were converts, but but the ability to learn and love and accept people from other religious traditions and be enriched by those traditions will enhance a missionary service and their ability to teach as well. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, the Lord didn't count sheep. He fed sheep. And um, we've gone through some cycles in the church with some kind of not good things that have happened over the years and some tremendous, wonderful things that have happened in terms of how missionary work has functioned. And if missionaries understand their role is to feed the Lord's sheep and to be his disciples, and in the process of that, 
they will see people join the church. It's not about, it's not a business. It's not about counting. And it's not about recognition. It's about doing the Lord's work, period. I'm just so touched by a lot of the things you just said, and it just resonates so much with me. I love, I'm just coming back to a couple, Kathleen, I love what you talked about emotional health. And I do think of, you know, mission prep in our home. We've had three sons go, a fourth son's out right now. And I've, and his peer group, I've recognized um, a need to prepare in a different way. Um, he has five close friends and two are back. And our oldest sons never had close friends that were kind of equally committed and doing as well come back. And I've met with these two that have come back and they're great men. They're the men that you would just squeeze their cheeks at the airport, Kathleen, and, and they're going to be okay because they're great men. But, you know, not to get too much into any of their situations, there is just different emotional challenges. And I love what you said, David, they're not soft. Uh, my experience with this YSA group is they are great. And they are better yeah. prepared and they're better wired for discipleship and they see people in the margins and their hearts are softer and more one and more focused on others. And there's some exceptions to that, but I just think a platitude is we dismiss something simply for us without fully understanding a situation by saying they're soft. And I'm glad you just hit that head on and you would know, because I love that experience you shared about that night in the office and, and so I don't think they're soft, but Kathleen, I do think as mission prep teachers, as parents and as priesthood leaders, we do need to have better tools to help our youth. You've said some wonderful terms. I kind of penciled them down, manage stress, self-aware, because I think a lot of, a lot of this is kind of a ticking time bomb. I don't know what the right vocabulary is, and there's not just enough. It's waiting to happen, and they walk into a situation that um, tech, stretches them in a way they haven't been stretched before. So this underlying emotional instability, or um, I don't know what words, I'm not clinically trained. It sort of all happens and it's not the missionary's fault. Um, it's sort of outside of their control. And then rightly so, they need to get home and get emotionally healthy. So I think you're right. There needs to be better tools. And I've heard about the booklet you rec adjusting to missionary life is wonderful. And I assume you can read that before you're a missionary. Is that available to, and so I think that's a great starting point. That, and I love um, you hitting the gospel topic essays head on. I loved when our seminary son came home, high school age son, and um, went through a gospel topic essay with Brother Reed Blackburn, our local seminary teacher. And that word inoculation is a really good word. And I recognize that, um, gosh, how what a wonderful way to learn about some of the more complex issues in our church that are talked about in the gospel essay by having our mission leaders or mission parents is what I used to call my mission president and his wife walking through the gospel topic essays as part of the training meeting or a zone conference and be able to talk about those complicated issues with people in our church and to be able to develop a framework to um, move forward, understanding those. And I love that. I, in a way I wish that happened. I think that's a great thing that happened in your mission. And I just think um, hitting those issues head on is a way to help members move forward. Um, so those are some really good things. Uh, just a question came to my mind. 
Um, we're kind of near the hour mark, which I've made a New Year's resolution to try to keep these in an hour. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I don't know how well I'll do o- o- over the long run, but we do have people on the, that are listeners that are are listening to this podcast that are kind of barely hanging on to the church. We do have people that have kind of gone through a faith crisis and have kind of shared their story of why they say. And I just sense you've had a lot of conversations with missionaries and others that have are struggling to stay. And you, what would you say to, you know, people, and maybe part of the answer is what is your core doctrines that kind of keep you believing? Often there's fundamental doctrines that are unique to our church that keep people that are kind of barely hanging on, being able to hang on just anything you'd want to share with a listener that's barely hanging on and kind of wants to stay, but just wants to stay in a way that feels authentic to them. Uh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I, I not too long ago I had a conversation with a young man who was um, grew up in our ward, really great kid, um, did not have a a very enjoyable mission experience for a whole variety of reasons, and came back and went to an Ivy League school and got a PhD and just an incredibly fine, considerate wonderful contributing member of society and a, and a national expert in his field. And he's walked away from the church and we had lunch and, and uh, I said, so tell me, what are your, tell me your issues. And he shared with me three or four issues that he had. And we kind of talked through them. And, and then I said to him, so tell me, how do you explain the book of Mormon? And uh, he said, you know, Joseph was a genius. And, and I said, you're a PhD in a scientist. And, um, you know, it takes as much or more faith to believe that theory than anything else. And and he looked at me and is just sincere as can be. And he said, yeah, I don't have a very good answer for that. And I, I think we are so quick culturally in the church to say, I know. And we don't leave enough room for discovery and the role of uncertainty. You know, I, I love the phrase of Joseph when he said, through proving contraries, truth is made manifest. And, and I've, I've read a lot in my life of the great religious thinkers across the, the centuries, and I'm a big fan of Bonhoeffer and Mother Teresa and, you know, yeah, um, Merton, and and the, the the theme I get through all of those readings in conjunction with the, the great religious leaders of the Restoration are it's okay to doubt because it's doubt that brings discovery. It was doubt that took Joseph to the grove, and yet we don't often talk about that. We talk about the sort of typical phrases that we hear of I know. And that's a good thing as well. But we 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 don't prepare people well enough, I believe, for what do they do when they hit that when they have a crisis of faith. Um, I remember in, as a college student, my father, who was quite a gospel scholar, and I was having some of those questions after my mission and I remember him saying to me, you know, he says, 
it's good to get on a limb once in a while and stretch. That don't get so far away from the trunk that you can't reach it. And he'd seen some of his friends walk away from the church over the priesthood issue in the 60s. And he remained faithful through it all. And it was because of some fundamental spiritual experiences that he that he shared with me. And that, that the interplay between faith and reason, and it's all about patience. You know, I have a brother that was out of the church for 20 years that is his back in and is, is focused on on the scriptures and the Book of Mormon. And uh, it's amazing to me. And it's it's a matter of patience and being willing to say, yeah, I'm not sure, but there's goodness here. And in time, I'll come to know more. I really love that, David. Kathleen, do you have any thoughts on this topic? Well, I, I think Dave expressed a lot of my same thoughts. Um, uh, many of the of the individuals that I have known personally that have walked away from the church still believe in the restoration. They still believe uh, in the origins of the church and the Book of Mormon. They believe that Joseph's a prophet, um, but they see things... Um, hypocrisy and things that they perceive within the church that makes them want to walk away. And um, I guess my thought would just be, if you see those imperfections and those areas that um, make it hard to uh, fully embrace your membership in the church, we need the people who see those things to stay. We need perspective their perspective we we need them to help us be better you know there's there's a phrase and i i didn't invent it i don't even remember where it came from but it's you know god doesn't plant lawns he plants meadows and you know i'm a mountaineer and a climber and skier and i love the mountains and one of the things about the mountains is that diversity of creation i said i had a state conference once as a 70 in the stake in canada where there were 20 languages spoken in that wow. stake. And in that Saturday night session, the translation. And I thought, this is what heaven, heaven's going to look like. It, wow. it's, it's not the uniformity. It's the, it's the diversity of God's creations and the diversity of his children and the diversity of our thought that is so easy culturally to, to set aside. And boy, we need it. We need it in the church. We need that person who might be viewed as kind of the gadfly and gospel doctrine, asking the off-the-wall questions. That was my dad, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. We need that to help us to, to grow and to learn together. And, um, you know, as somebody once said, if we both think the same way, one of us isn't necessary. <laughs> wow. This is just great. I've um, What you both just said is really, really helpful, and I love the way you created space for people to have doubt. You create space for people to be different, and instead of creating shame around that or the need for uniformity, I'm talking about that in beautiful ways, uh, about the beautiful diversity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we need um, these different voices, and that's certainly how I feel. And... and um, 
And so I love what you just said, and I think it helps a lot of our listeners. I Just one thought, and then I'll give it to you to see if you have any closing thoughts about any topic you want to share or a closing thought about service missionaries. I remember giving a blessing to a service missionary, um, and I blessed one of the most valiant premortal spirits that I've ever blessed, Dave and Kathleen. And um, I just recognized that with my mortal eyes, I saw maybe some limitations that were erased when my spiritual eyes saw as Heavenly Father saw and and was kind of made aware of the valiancy of this person and his role in the pre-mortal life. And I just, it really impacted me to not see people the way I may see people and the way, you know, my mortal eyes may see things. And I wish I could always do that and always have that kind of feeling. But those that are service missionaries out there that are listening or considering you know, you may be those very valiant, some of the most valiant pre-mortal spirits that help people and will help people now in unique ways that no other person and no other service opportunity will reach them the way you can. And culturally, it's a little bit of of an uphill battle. Um, I think that'll change just with some of the things, particularly Kathleen mentioned with um, how we treat with farewells and and we call you elder and sister, and and we look at you as completely equal. You're consecrating your time to the Savior to teach and to serve, and it's equal service. And you're doing the very best you can in reaching people that perhaps no other person can. So um, some of you are my heroes, you service missionaries and you leaders that help them. And I think you're trailblazers, and I think in a generation there'll be this sort of cultural um, discussion that we've had on this podcast will end, and this will be a thing of the past. Um, David and Kathleen, let's start with David and then give Kathleen the last thought. Any last thoughts you'd like to share, David? You know, um, I'm sure there may be some parents of missionaries that are serving as teaching missions right now that have some concerns. Um, I've, I've served as a counselor to four mission presidents and I served as a mission president, and I can tell you that the brethren listen and they care. And if there is a concern that they have about anything, don't ever hesitate to reach out to their mission president, or if they're not satisfied with the response, to reach out to the brethren or the missionary department, they listen. I've seen it, and I've seen it up close and personal. The, the church, as big as it is, is still a personal organization. And to parents that have anxiety about their missionaries, don't hesitate to reach out. Love that. Kathleen? Well, I guess I would just conclude by saying, you know, we all come to the earth with um, unique abilities, and we can all make a meaningful contribution to the Lord's work. Um, on a membership record after a missionary has served, there's no indication whatsoever what type of mission they served. It won't say they served a teaching mission or a service mission. It will just note that they were willing. That's great. Thank you, David and Kathleen Cook, from calling in from, if I've got it right, Meadow, New York? Menden. 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 There's sort of, and, um, 
thank you for just taking the time and um, sharing some of your thoughts about our restored church in general and ser- service missionaries in particular. On behalf of all listeners, our prayers and thoughts are with you and your s- current service. And uh, I think we all share a joint prayer that service missions will continue to grow. I'm not sure if we mentioned this, but before we went live, I th- you mentioned that you feel there's probably about one per ward that could that often okay. self-selects out of a teaching mission that could be serving a a service mission. So I think I kind of like that number where there's one, maybe two per ward and, and that could become the normal. And as that gets normalized, then it doesn't become so unusual. We just know that that's part of the normal way people serve. So thank you, David and Kathleen Cook. And thank you, our listeners for joining us on another episode of listen, learn and love hosted by Richard Osler.